if you were able to gather with your family that you had a good time and if you weren't able to be with family well you had a good time with those that you were with if you have your bible we're going to be in first john chapter one so if you want to go ahead and uh turn to first john chapter one now in keeping with the idea of christmas uh and the, the fact that many of us received gifts yesterday have you ever been given a gift and you weren't sure what it was or even what you were supposed to do with it. Now, many of you know, um, I'm, I'm a second grade teacher. I've been an elementary teacher for 18 years. And so over the course of that time, I've received my share of gifts, right? Children love to bring gifts to their teachers um, for Christmas. They love to bring it at the end of the year. Um, and I'm always thankful for those gifts. But there have been a few, and I'm not gonna name them or say the names in case they happen to be here or are watching. There are some gifts that I get that I'm like, thank you, right? Like, I, I just don't know what to do with them. Um, but thankfully, the gift of the gospel is not that way. We have the Bible to tell us exactly why we received it and how it should exist in our lives. Now, over the past few weeks, we've had the opportunity to look at the promises of the coming Messiah and the role that he's going to play. And all of this culminated in the incarnation, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But that's not where the story ends. The promise has been given, and if you are a believer, you have received that promise. That's a good thing. But what does it mean to apply that promise, right? We, we, we've received the gift, and now what are we supposed to do with it? What are the practical implications of that? Because the promise of the gospel needs to be more than just fire insurance, more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card to keep you from going to hell. Now, thankfully, we have the letter of 1 John to give us a clear picture of what the gospel looks like as it develops in our lives. So, uh, like I said, if you, you have your Bible, we're in 1 John. We're going to read uh, 1 John 1, beginning in verse 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 6. And it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down the, this, the parts of this, uh, the, this letter here. And the first thing that we see is that the promise of the gospel is Jesus. Right at the beginning of the letter, John lays out the truths of the incarnation. The fact that God the Son became a human. At the, at the time John was writing this letter, he was fighting against at least two false teachings. The first was known as Gnosticism, which taught that physical matter, so anything that you could touch and put your hands on, anything that, that physical matter was evil, meaning that Jesus in human form would have been evil, and that there was some secretive knowledge that you had to attain in order to be saved. The second false teaching was known as uh, Docetism. Docetism taught that Jesus was actually, or at, that Jesus wasn't actually a human. He was a ghost or an apparition, and when he died on the cross, he only appeared to be going through those sufferings. It's these false teachings that led Jesus to argue, or led John to argue as vehemently as he did. So the question is, why is John arguing for the actual existence of Jesus? Well, the reason is because the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they prove the truth of the scriptures. As we've seen in the previous weeks leading up to this, um, leading up to the celebration of Christmas, there were promises made of a coming Messiah, one who would save his people from their sins. John is telling his readers that not only was Jesus an actual, real person, all of the things that John has told them are true because John heard them from Jesus himself. Not only that, but John had a close relationship with Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, every time Je Jesus goes somewhere, who's right there with him? John was right there with him. So when John said, I touched him, I heard him, I saw him, all of those things he said, he really was there. He knew Jesus personally, so he can attest to everything as being true. And because those things are true, eternal life is also true and is given through Jesus to everyone who believes in Jesus. Now, John continues his letter by telling his readers, by letting his readers know that there are some key signs, some key markers that will be evident in the lives of those who have believed. These markers, these are markers to show that, yes, this person is, in fact, a believer. Now, later in his letter, John will tell us that one of the reasons he's writing is so that the readers may know that they have eternal life. So what we see here is that Jesus is the promise of the gospel. And as this portion of the letter continues, we're going to look at four different ways in which the promise of Jesus 
is applied in the lives of believers. Now, I got I to gotta take a time out for a second. I realized when I typed my notes and sent them over, the numbering is off. So if it says number one, and now I'm going to say the first thing, and it says number two, that's totally on me. Okay, now back, back to what we were doing. All right, so the first thing that we're going to see is the promise is applied through a life of fellowship. The first thing that we see that John is writing is so that his readers will have fellowship. John was sharing the truths of Jesus, the facts that he had been, that he had seen and touched him because he wanted others to have that same fellowship he had, the fellowship of a new life. The truth that John was communicating had life-altering implications. Believing what John said about Jesus literally meant the difference between life and death. Now, in addition, though, the truths of Jesus should bring us into fellowship with both God and with one another. So first, receiving the promise of the gospel brings us into fellowship with other believers. Christians are united around the truths of the gospel. We share the same beliefs and we have the same goals. It should be the desire of every believer to see God glorified and the message of the gospel taken out to the nations. This is the fellowship we share and we shouldn't want to invite others into that fellowship. In fact, it was one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before ascending into heaven. He said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The invitation to this fellowship is extended to everyone and anyone who responds is brought into the family. But not only do the truths of the gospel bring a life of fellowship with other believers, it brings us into fellowship with God and with Jesus. Our fellowship is through Jesus and with Jesus. We become part of God's family. Through the gospel, God becomes our father and we become co-heirs with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So, are you experiencing a life of fellowship, not just with God, but with other believers? Do you share the same loves, goals, and desires of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there joy and happiness when new individuals join our fellowship? Because these are signs of a life of fellowship that comes through Jesus. Now, not only do we have a life of fellowship through Jesus, but this next point is believers have a life of joy. In, in uh, 1 John uh, 1 verse 4, we see that John wants his readers to know the truth of the gospel for another reason. And that is so that their joy may be full. Not just halfway. Or I guess that's not even halfway, but you, you get what I'm saying. Right? He wants it to be full. He wants it to be overflowing. Um, to riff off of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we find our joy in him. John's words are similar to those of Jesus. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. 
And in John 16, 24, he said, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Now at this point, a definition of the word joy would probably be helpful, especially what joy means in relation to the Bible. So growing up, I I grew up in in a church down the road. Um, Growing up, there was a visiting preacher who would always come to our church. He'd come every year and set up his little booth out front to sell his t-shirts and his books. Um, And he would always tell the same joke. Anytime somebody would come up to the table, he, he would say, hey, would you like to see my pride and joy? And of course, you know, it would be rude to say, no, I don't, I'm not interested, right? And, and so the, 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 the poor person who walked up would say, sure, I'd like to see your pride and joy. And so the man would reach into his back pocket, he'd pull out his wallet, and I'm thinking, Eric, he's going to show pictures of his children. He had a picture of a bottle of soap, one labeled pride and the other labeled joy. Now, as a teenager, I, I was like, that joke is so terrible, Now that I'm a dad, I realize, man, that is comedy gold. But in the Bible, joy is a sense of inner contentment, regardless of our circumstances, that we have because we understand that God is sovereign over all of our situations. As one author put it, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. This is why James tells us to consider it great joy when we face various trials. And Peter said we should rejoice even when we suffer grief in various trials. Now how is this possible? Because joy doesn't find its source or beginning in us. It is a fruit of the Spirit fruit of the spirit a sign that we are in christ so we have a life of joy our joy is full when we have a life of fellowship with god through jesus and how do we have fellowship with god through jesus by believing the truth of the gospel as conveyed by john in the scripture do you see how these things are starting to build off of each other we believe the gospel we have fellowship and when we have fellowship we have joy that brings us to the next aspect of, being, of having received the promise of the gospel. We will not only see the promise applied in a life of fellowship and in a life of joy, but it will also be applied in a life of holiness. John begins this section with this definitive truth about God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, why is that important? Why is John stressing that? Because it shows us the absolute holiness of God. It's a callback to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the train of God's robe while in the temple, and the angels are declaring, holy, holy, holy. To say that God is light is John's way of describing his absolute perfection. There are no flaws or impurities or sin in God in any way. Now, this should be terrifyingly bad news for you and me. Why? Because we're sinners. Our nature is sinful, and because God is holy and we are not, we are separated and alienated from God. Now, I said that this should be bad news. However, because of Jesus... 
those who believe are united with God again. We are in Christ, which means we are in the light. A life of holiness is the demonstration of being in Christ and being in the light with God. So what does a life of holiness look like? Do we walk around with our heads held high and our our hands folded in prayer like this and we're doing our best not to sully our white robes? We're humming Gregorian chants all day long. Is that what holiness looks like? That's probably the image of holiness that most people have, but that's not the reality. In, John, in verses 6 through 10 of, John, of 1 John 1, John gives us a series of negative and positive assertions, almost like couplets in a poem, to describe what a life of holiness will look like. So first, John states that if we claim to have fellowship with Jesus, but walk in darkness, we are lying and do not practice the truth. Those are some pretty hard words. What is John saying here? He is saying that if someone claims to be a believer, to have a relationship with Jesus, but continues to live a life that is contrary to what the Bible is teaching, he's lying to others. The point that John is trying to make is that there are many people who want to claim the name of Jesus, and they want the benefits of being a Christian, but they also want to live their lives however they want to. There is no difference between this person's life and the person who isn't a believer, except that the first person will occasionally show up for church on Sunday. When this is the life of an individual, someone who claims to know Jesus, but also wants to continue sinning, that person is lying and headed toward destruction. In, first, I'm sorry, in John 8, Jesus had a confrontation with the Pharisees the religious leaders of that day. They claimed to have a relationship with God, but continually rejected Jesus. So this is what Jesus had to say to them. John 8, it says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's some tough words right there. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What was Jesus saying to the Pharisees there? He was telling them that even though they claimed to be followers of God, they were in fact children of the devil. Their claims of holiness did not match up with their actions. And as we know, there are only two types of people, children of God or children of the serpent. But John then continues on with a positive observation. He says that if we walk in light, meaning not just claiming holiness, but actually living a life of repentance and striving for holiness, we have fellowship with Christ and other believers. And this is the important part. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Our words and our lifestyle will match up. People will see our lives and notice that there is something different. Now that doesn't mean that we march around pointing our fingers at other people's sins. And when everyone in, in, and when everyone in a church family is walking in, in the light, it means that true gospel fellowship is taking place. 
We aren't hiding our sins from each other for fear of rejection or ridicule. We can know that our brothers and sisters in Christ will pray for us and help us to seek restoration. It means that we know that we are sinners and we are relying on Christ to live the lives of holiness because there is no way we could do it on our own. Now, the second group of assertions is in verses 8 and 9. Um, so following up from verse 6, John states that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, John comes out swinging, right? He doesn't pull any punches. What does it mean to say we have no sin? Well, if you think about it, that's a pretty arrogant statement, right? A person who, who claims to have no sin is telling God that he doesn't need him as a savior. He's saying, God, I know you sent Jesus from heaven to die for sinners, but that's not me. I'm not a sinner. So Jesus' sacrifice wasn't meant for me. This is a person who has seared his conscience and no longer sees the need for repentance. Now, it's very likely that there is someone hearing me and thinking, well, Jonathan, I know I'm a sinner, right? We're, we're reminded of it all the time. I, I know I'm a sinner. It would be ridiculous for me to claim otherwise. But in the very next breath, that same person is making excuses for his or her sin or acting as if those sins were no big deal. Time and time again, we sin and we immediately try to downplay the sin or act as if it was nothing. We have to remember that every sin, no matter the size or severity, is an offense to a holy God. That's why James wrote in, the, in his letter, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So after this negative assertion, John offers the positive point in verse 9. He says that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. That means that as we pursue a life of holiness, we realize that we are sinners and we confess our sins. We cry out to God for forgiveness. And when we do, Jesus will forgive those sins. They are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Again, what a beautiful truth that is. Our sins are forgiven. Let that truth set you free. Now, the final pair of arguments that John makes is found in verse 10 of chapter 1 and then continues on into chapter 2. John approaches the, what John is doing here is John approaches the idea of a person claiming that he is sinless. First, we saw that John is arguing that claims of sinlessness are lies to others. Then we saw that John is, then we saw that claiming to be without sin is deceiving ourselves. Here, and this is the point that's been alluded to each time, John says that if we say we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and the truth is not in us. There's no good way to get around that, right? You can't, you can't sugarcoat that or soften that in any way. What John is arguing here is that if a person says he has not sinned, then that person is not a child of God. Those are some devastating words. John is not mincing his words here. It comes down to this. 
we cannot live a life of holiness if we are also living a life of sin. And if we deny that we are sinning, or we try to downplay or excuse our sin in any way, we are lying to others, we are deceiving ourselves, and we're calling Almighty God a liar. Now thankfully, John follows this up with a positive statement in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John reminds his readers that his purpose in writing is so that they will not sin. Wait, didn't he just, he would just spend all his time talking about how you say you haven't sinned, right? So, so what is John getting out of here? What is, what is the point John is making? Um, is it even possible to be sinless? It's not. Even as believers, we will continue to sin until we are in our glorified bodies with Christ. That being said, John believes And that's the purpose for this letter, is that Christians can sin less. He is expecting his readers, and that includes you and me, to live a life of holiness. How will that be possible? By confessing and repenting of sin when it happens. By striving to be in fellowship with God and with other believers, and by being joyful. So what happens, what happens when we do sin? Because it is going to happen. The answer is in it, there in chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate has the idea of being a helper. When, not if, but when we sin, we have a helper in Jesus Christ. All through 1 John up to this point, we have seen how Jesus is our helper. He is our cleanser in chapter 1, verse 7. He is our forgiver in chapter 1, verse 9. And here, Jesus is our helper when we sin. We have only to confess our sins knowing that Jesus is in heaven interceding on our behalf. He is not like Satan who is constantly reminding of us reminding us of our sins and our failures. Instead, Jesus removes our filthy garments and replaces them with clean ones. One of my favorite images of Jesus as an advocate is found in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 for you. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. How is Jesus able to serve as our advocate? Well, the answer is found there in verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation has the idea of satisfaction, of fulfilling something. In other words, the debt we owed because of our sins was satisfied by Jesus through his sinless life 
sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. Our sins are covered because of Jesus. And not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus was stressing that no one is beyond the scope of Christ's sacrifice. The gift of the gospel, the gift that allows us to pursue a life of holiness, is available to everyone. As one Puritan writer put it, the Christian life is a life of continued repentance, humiliation for, and mortification of sin, of continual faith in, thankfulness for, and love to the Redeemer, and hopeful, joyful expectation of a day of glorious redemption in which the believer shall be fully and finally acquitted and sin abolished forever. The promise of the gospel is applied through a life of holiness. Live a life of repentance and confession. We should be striving for a life of sinlessness, but know and rest in the truth that when we do sin, we have an advocate there to help us. And finally, we see the promise of the gospel is applied through a life of obedience. As you can probably tell from the verses in 1 John, John isn't a person to mince words. He doesn't seem to be tiptoeing around trying not to hurt everyone's feelings. John just comes right out and says, if you're a believer in Christ, if you say that you know Jesus, but you aren't keeping his commandments, then you aren't a believer in Jesus. Right? He doesn't mince words. He comes right out and says it. John wants his readers and us to know that the promise is applied through a life of obedience. If we claim to know Jesus, we will be obedient to the commands of Scripture. Our lives should be lives of imitating Jesus. As it says in verse 6, if we say we abide in Jesus, we should walk just as he walked. So how does this work? What does a life of obedience look like? Well, the first thing, we need to know the commands of Scripture. It's really easy to say, well, Jonathan, I've never killed anybody and I've never been unfaithful to my spouse, so I guess I'm good, right? We're, we're, we're good here. There are many other commandments in the Bible. Knowing your Bible and not just reading it to see what you can and can't do, right? The Bible doesn't say that. I guess I can get away with it, all right? Not just reading it as a rule book is essential for living a life of obedience. In fact, studying the Bible is commanded in the scriptures. So that's a great place to start. Second, rely on the Holy Spirit to help you to fulfill the commands of Scripture. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be able to live a life of obedience. And third, praise God for the victories of obedience and lean into God for strength when you fail. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Again, look at how all of, this, all of this builds on the things before it. The promise is applied through a life of obedience, which will come as a result of a life that pursues holiness. A life of holiness is the result of a life of joy, and a life of joy is the result of a life of fellowship with Jesus and each other, which all stem from the gift of the gospel. Isn't the gospel amazing? The promise of the gospel that was 
The promise of the gospel was that God's people would be saved from their sins. The Messiah would come to rescue his people. If you are a believer, you have received that promise and that gift. Receiving the promise should be apparent in your life. Having received the promise, it should be applied through a life of fellowship, of joy, of holiness, and of obedience. These are the signs of a new life. So we have to ask ourselves, is the gift of the gospel being applied in my life? Is the promise being demonstrated? If not, let's talk and find out why. If it is, praise God and share what's happening so that others can join in the life of fellowship that comes through the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this letter, this letter from uh, from John that it, it, it contains some difficult words. It contains some, some difficult things, some difficult truths. But Father, we thank you that it also points to the beauty of the gospel. And it helps us to know and to have assurance that we are in fact your children by, by these things being evident in our lives. And so Father, I pray that uh, those that are here this morning, those that may be hearing me uh, via our live stream or maybe later on through the podcast, that they would take an opportunity to reflect and see that these things, a life of joy, a life of fellowship, obedience and holiness, that those are reflected in their lives. And that if they are not, that they would turn to you and trust you as their only hope in life and death so that they might receive the spirit so that they can uh, be, continue to pursue those things. Father, I ask that those of us who are your children, that we would continue to look to you and trust you so that those things would become more and more evident in our lives. So that even though our lives may not be sinless, that we may sin less because we are trusting in you. Father, we love you. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. We're going to sing together again. Then we'll uh, partake of the Lord's Supper.